On this episode, self-defense, solo hiking, the flat part of the Inca Trail, and the zombie apocalypse. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, everyone. We are excited today to have Nicole Snell with us. She is the CEO of Girls Fight Back, is an international speaker, and is <laughs> is the person you want at your side during a zombie apocalypse, as we recently learned. So, um, Nicole, I will let you go ahead and you know give a little bit more uh, info on yourself, but I thought I'd start there. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much, Severia. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My name is Nicole Snell. I am the CEO of Girls Fight Back, which is a women's empowerment and personal safety self-defense seminar. It was started in 2001 by Erin Weed in honor of her friend, Shannon McNamara, who was taken from us too soon in a violent attack. And Erin wanted to teach women the basics of self-defense to help us feel more empowered and confident going out and living our lives instead of living in fear. So I became a speaker for the company five years ago and traveled the world speaking. And then this year I took over and I plan on continuing the mission of teaching people, not just women, but we've opened it up to gender inclusive audiences to teach everyone the basics of personal safety so that we can live our lives freely, open up our world and not feel like we have to limit it. In addition to that, I am a full contact self-defense instructor with Impact Personal Safety. Not so much full contact now because of the pandemic. However, we will be going back to that eventually. We brought everything online, same with Girls Fight Back. And I created Outdoor Defense, which is a IG, it, and it is an IGTV series that brings my love of solo traveling and solo adventuring with my passion for self-defense and educating people on that. And so I give people strategies that they can use on the trails, on the road, or pretty much anywhere that can help them feel more empowered to go out and, and venture out solo if that's what they'd like to do. Sorry, I just recently went through and uh, listened to the Outdoor Defense. I was like, oh, I'm just going to listen to like a couple every day. And I got so into it. I just listened to them all at once because they're they're great because they're like bite-sized like chunks. And I was like, I want to know what's next. I want to know what's next. So... Um, yeah, no, the Outdoor Defense series is actually, they're really great and have like great tips and are awesome. Oh, thank you so much. I was just looking at how many I have out now and I said, oh my gosh, there's 25 out. I didn't realize I, I just do them. I just, I don't even look back and think and I'm like, oh my goodness, I've done 25 of them already. Wow. So out of curiosity, how much would it cost uh, for you to beat up Jeff for me? I just, 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 you know, ballpark number. <laughs> I mean... I don't know. I'd have to think about it. How? I mean, how tall are you? And you're all the way in Bend, so you got to travel time. Got to factor yeah, that in. Yeah, yeah. I would pay for your mileage and lodging, <laughs> and uh, and I give you a small expense account. J Jason, I thought you were my friend. Oh man. Oh, you know, you know. <laughs> this is actually a really great topic. Um, you know, I have through the SoCal Hikers Facebook group, we have like we're approaching 40,000 members. And that's a question that comes up over and over again, especially among the women, you know, is it safe for me to hike solo? And, and there's a whole range of opinions on this. And I have, you know, 
there's a lot of people who will jump in and say, oh, never hike solo, you know, always hike with a friend or, you know, whatever. What do you, what's your approach and how do you help people kind of get past that hurdle to feel safe hiking solo? It's a great question. And when it comes to doing like adventure activities, the idea of hiking with someone or being with someone is, is great for general safety and like emergencies. Like if you slip and fall down a cliff, do you have someone that can call 911 or someone that can offer you assistance? I'm scuba certified and you know, you always die with a buddy. Like it's not a matter of, uh, it's not even a question because it's a safety issue as far as like your equipment and what if an emergency happens that you can't control. So when it comes to hiking solo, I, I have been hiking solo for years and I love it because it allows me to just, have my own time and connect with nature and go my own pace and just kind of enjoy things on my own terms. Not to say I don't enjoy hiking with other people, but it just is a different experience for me. And what I try to explain to people is that the majority of people that you meet on the trail are good people. That just because someone's a stranger, it doesn't mean that they're a bad person. They're out to hurt you. There's a lot of fear around it that is based on what we hear in the news and what we see on TV. And then there's this, this general fear that going anywhere outside by yourself is just inherently dangerous. And that's not true because danger is everywhere. And you could, you know, you could face danger just walking, you know, down the street in broad daylight with someone. So it's not saying that if you, if you hike by yourself, you're inherently putting yourself at danger because that's saying that, oh, if you don't do that, that's guaranteeing your safety. And that's not because there's no guarantees. So what I try to explain to people is that so much of self-defense and safety is about awareness and intuition. And it's a choice that you make. And I've been on solo hikes where I got to a point in the trail and something fell off and I turned around and I came back. So it's just noticing what's happening around you, being willing to change your plans if you need to, if something seems off, the same that you would do if you were with a group, if something just felt off or, you know, the weather changed and it was no longer safe for you to continue. And just understand that we have the skills and the abilities within ourselves to handle so many situations that just because we're women, it doesn't mean we're weak. It doesn't mean we're incapable of handling ourselves. It doesn't mean we have to rely on anyone else for our safety or to take care of us. We are fully capable of doing that ourselves. So I try to offer women tools that they can use to manage their safety in a lot of different situations and to empower them with that knowledge that despite what society may say, about our abilities to do this we can do this that's great because again even i get that question sometimes and i'm like i i don't know how to answer that as like a giant guy you know like if you're if you're a smaller woman like how to feel safe out there but i mean i i really do think that you know you're very you're very safe in the outdoors i think you're probably safer in the outdoors than you are in society you know i mean statistically and everything that seems to be proven as well and and you know I mean, again, people are uh, people are afraid of bears. People are afraid of all these animals. People kill way more people than any animal kills of people. So it's like the further you are away from lots and lots of people, kind of the safer you are. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, statistically and statistically, you know, women are more often assaulted by people they know, not strangers, even though what we see in the news is mostly strangers. So um, it's just another layer of, not to say that it doesn't happen because it does, but we have tools and things that we have that we can use to where we can still open up our world and do these things that we want to do and go hike solo if we want to. Like, I'm not telling anyone they have to because it's a choice, but for someone else, maybe instead of hiking solo, that's not their, their thing, but maybe for them, the 
the breakthrough for them is being able to go to the store by themselves without their partner or without someone or to do something else, you know, by themselves that they would not have otherwise felt comfortable to do. And I just want to offer people the, the information that, that you are fully capable of managing yourself in these situations that not everyone you meet meets you means you harm. And there's so many tools you can use you know, your voice, your intuition, your awareness, your body language, all these things that can help be a deterrent to someone who may be looking to target you. And, and then you also have your physical skills that you can use to back it up if it comes to that. So are there cases where you would not hike solo? I, I, so, and I'll give you an example for myself personally. Um, I did a solo hike up Mount Bachelor last Friday and I felt perfectly safe and comfortable. Firstly, it's not a very long hike. It's fairly close. Um, I had cell reception most of the time on the trail. I, you know, I, it wasn't like a high risk situation for me. Um, there, uh, as Jason and I were talking about before we started recording this, uh, we were talking about our Mount Re plan planned climb up Mount Rainier. And that is definitely one that I would not hike solo. And it's definitely one that I wouldn't hike just with Jason, but we're actually going with a guide. For that one because it requires another level of technical expertise and so forth so it's not only about personal safety and you know it's also sort of about the the technical nature of the hike itself are there some where do you draw that line and is is that something that you can uh, advise people on or is that something that they have to know personally based on their own skills and expertise that's a great question and i completely agree with you it's hiking solo is not just about personal safety worrying about dangerous strangers or dangerous animals it's also how comfortable are you with your own hiking skills on the trail you're going to do and it's part of just doing your research in advance i'm not going to go hike in a snowstorm because i'm not trained as a mountaineer i don't have an ice axe i wouldn't feel comfortable doing something that's outside of my skill level so i would either not do it or go with someone who is experienced or learn how to do it and then go with someone experienced until I felt comfortable doing it. So it's all about your personal comfort and your confidence in the trail you're doing. I hike solo very often around SoCal and I, I go hike at night. People tell me all the time, oh, you shouldn't hike at night. And I, I tell them I'm comfortable on this trail. If something feels off, I know what to do. I always let my sister know where I'm going because I have seen the movie 127 hours and I do not plan on cutting off my arm to get out of a bad situation. So I always let someone know where I'm going to be just in case something like that happens. What if I, you know, have a heart attack and fall down the mountain or whatever. So yeah, um, there are, there absolutely would be trails that I wouldn't do solo. If, you know, if I'm looking it up online and it says it's, you know, class four hiking trail, I don't, you know, I haven't done a lot of class four. So I would go with someone who, who has and turn around if I felt like it wasn't, you know, I wasn't skilled enough to do it. The um, last year, a group of friends and I, we did Ice House Canyon in the snow right after it had snowed. And we had our micro spikes and we were going up there. We got to the saddle and we thought we would either go, um, you know, keep going to timber, but the snow was so thick, you couldn't really see the trail in any direction to Ontario Peak or Cucamonga Peak. So we turned around and, you know, we were with people. So it just, it's all about awareness. like checking out what you see in front of you and do you feel like you have the skills and the and to be able to to handle that and it's not about your ego or pride it's about safety jeff and i turned around on ice house uh earlier this year but it was less a 
a, a technical thing and more just a misery thing. We were hoping for snow and it was rain. So we were, we were pretty soaked and then it kind of it hit that really slick stuff. And we had, you know, we had traction and all that, but it just, it didn't really seem, you know, we were pretty soaked to the bone. So we decided we, we were to really hoping around. for snow actually, because it would have been much more pleasant and enjoy and we have the skills for that so we would have, we were prepared for it um and we were prepared more or less for rain but it was just it just got miserable so yeah we turned around yeah i like to say the best adventure is the one you get to come home from right like yeah. like have a get a good tale um nicole you had mentioned a couple times awareness as part of as one of the things you know for safety what are your thoughts on hiking with headphones and people who are like in their own world? Like, do you have any thoughts on, does that take away from your awareness of what's going on around you? Can you still be aware while being on there? Yeah. I mean, it does. You're taking away one of your senses and I'm not here to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do because we're all masters of our own safety and we all get to make our own choices. But when it comes to, you know, hiking or even running with headphones, you just want to make sure that you can still hear things that are going on around you, you know, so maybe have it low enough to where you can still hear. I keep, uh, I don't wear headphones anymore when I'm hiking or if I do, I'll, I'll make sure I turn down because there's a lot of rattlesnakes out here. So I want to hear if something's rattling or rustling around in the bushes. So I'll keep my headphones low or I just don't wear them at all. But it's, there's bone conducting headphones that I know a lot of runners wear. So when they're out and doing like road runs, so they can still get all the other ambient noise and then also still hear their headphones. But, you know, even if you are lost in thought without headphones, you can be, you know, not as aware. And it's, it is unreasonable to think that we are going to be aware of everything all the time. So we can only do our best and, and, and make the most with with what information that we're able to get in with yeah i i only it's funny i actually i will only use them when i'm hiking with a group when i'm backpacking with a group that's the only time i'll use headphones and and i was hiking alone in, in grizzly country 17 hours ago and no headphones i won't do it um unless i am with other people i do i do feel like it's sort of a, a risk thing um so yeah i but you know, everyone has again, like we're saying, everyone has their own threshold for safety. And I gotta, I gotta find out. I was reading a little bit about you and and the things that you've done and the things that you've learned. And you're sort of a Renaissance woman. Um, but there was something about learning how to ride a motorcycle and the zombie apocalypse. And I gotta hear a little more about that. How do those tie together? So, I always have had this drive in me that I've wanted to learn how to do things just for the sake of knowing how to do it in case of a worst case scenario. And, this, you know, Walking Dead, uh, I don't even know if they're, are they done? Are there still episodes out? I stopped watching after like the seventh or eighth season, I think. But I was like, what if, you know, what if there was some sort of zombie Global apocalypse, pandemic. you know? Yeah. I mean, you, we can't rule anything out. So I was like, well, what if I needed to get out of the city or what if there was an earthquake or some other natural disaster? I'm right in the middle of LA. How do I get out of the city and get to safety? And I was like, well, what if the only thing that's available is like a motorcycle on the side of the road, but I don't know how to ride it. What good is that going to be? So I said, you know what? I'm going to learn how to ride a motorcycle. So I took a motorcycle safety class and I learned how to ride. And I said, you know what? This is a lot of fun. And then I bought a motorcycle. 
motorcycle like a month later. Uh, there is going to be, I believe, at least one more season of Walking Dead. And I say that because one of my best friends writes for it. So, you know. Oh, great. Shout out to my friend Eric. He writes on it. So they, they <laughs> shut down. I think they, funny enough, they shut down halfway, I believe, through shooting the season, if I'm not mistaken, last I talked to him, because of this actual COVID apocalypse. So, so you know, wow. the, a, a thing about a zombie apocalypse was shut down from a, you know, so, virus So in the apocalypse. final season of <laughs> The Walking Dead, we find out that COVID-19 was the seed that... Yeah. turned the people into zombies oh my gosh oh my gosh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so nicole how did you get started um in self-defense and like what kind of training have you had and i guess what would you recommend how would you recommend other people start yeah so i i've always been very active and athletic and just again wanting to learn things just for the sake of learning them so i took martial arts you know here and there i'm not beyond a white belt in any of the disciplines so i don't want to oversell any of my martial arts skills, but I've taken classes and I really enjoy them. And I, you know, became an adult and I had not taken, you know, a specific self-defense class. And what had happened is I was dating someone at the time, a few years ago, and we were play wrestling in my apartment and he pinned me to the ground and I couldn't get out of it. And he was just sitting there holding me down and in the back of my head, something clicked. And I was like, what if this was real, Nicole? Like, you don't know what to do. I was really just sitting there and I felt helpless and I don't like to feel that way. I like to know that I have an option. I like to know that there's something I could do in that situation. And so that lack of knowledge that I had for that particular circumstance, I decided to change that. So I took a self-defense class and I loved it. And I started feeling more confident, but I was, I was doing things by myself and, and, and all this before I took self-defense because I was... I was, I'm stubborn and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm not going to wait on anyone else. If I want to do something, I'm going to do it by myself if that's what it takes. And that's always how I've been from the time I was a little girl, but I wanted additional training. And then I ended up getting connected with Girls Fight Back. I found out about their company and I emailed them and asked if I could work for them. And three months later, they had an opening. So I started to be trained to be a speaker. And part of the training was to take a 20 hour full contact adrenaline based self-defense course through impact personal safety. And I graduated and I emailed the owner and said, all right, so I want to be an instructor. What do I do? And so I started my training and became an assistant and then, you know, worked my way up. I think I have over 70 hours of training to become an instructor. But our self-defense is based on realistic scenarios. You're striking a fully padded instructor, adrenaline-based, so it's stress inoculation training. You're being trained in the medium in which you would experience that in real life. So someone verbally assaulting you and, um, and then coming, you know, attacking you. And we teach very simple strikes so that you learn how to manage your adrenaline and fight through it. And it becomes procedural memory. I got a question about the adrenaline-based part a little bit. If you could go into that a little bit more, because it sounds like, if I understand it, they are creating a scenario and 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 triggering an adrenaline rush in you. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Wow. So it's 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 not a so it's basically helping you to or simulating the situation that you might encounter in real life and 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 being able to deal with that with a plan, with intent, as opposed to just reacting. Yes. And because you're trained in the adrenaline state, it becomes procedural memory. And then when you face, or if you end up facing that in the real world, you, you, it's in your body now 
in that state already. So you're not having to cognitively think about what moves you're going to do because the moves are very simple. They mimic kind of what your body already does under stress. And we keep it very simple. And people have taken, you know, the impact course and come back and been like, this is immediately useful. Like this is practical from the, the moment I leave class from a three hour intro uh, basics, uh, not a basic, a three hour intro to a 20 hour basics class. And the, the, you know, the 20 hours, you're just learning additional, you know, scenarios and things, but yeah, you are, you're put face to face with someone in a, in a, a mock scenario, and then you have to fight your way out of it. And I mean, it's a general sense too. It's like hit, like, get, you know, whatever hit, get, then get the hell out of there. Is that, is that kind of like the general idea of what to do? Like something to deter the person and then like, like flee as yes. fast as possible. Yeah, we talk very much about the idea of getting to safety and avoiding. A lot of it is about avoidance. We focus in impact, we focus very heavily on verbal strategies. And in Girls Fight Back, Girls Fight Back is kind of like an introductory seminar. So we're designed for like, you know, larger audiences, but we can do small audiences, but we don't do full contact. But if someone is then interested in full contact, then we refer them to impact. So Girls Fight Back and impact work very closely together. And I'm also an instructor for impact. So it's great if they do Girls Fight Back. I'm like, oh, well, I'm probably going to be your instructor. <laughs> you come take an impact class. But um, we teach very simple strikes, no punches, open hands, keeps us as safe as possible. And um, we talk about what we can say to someone to avoid a situation. We talk again about intuition and awareness and, you know, an impact we're simulating worst case scenarios. So it's going to end in a fight. But the idea is to hit someone with as much ferocity and in such a vulnerable spot that you can incapacitate them so you can get to safety. It's not about drawing it out. It's about how fast and how fast can I take them out so I can get away. How has this changed for how has this changed for you since with COVID and you said you're bringing your stuff online? Are you guys just focusing more on the verbal aspects of it? How as a business, how has that changed for you guys? Yeah, so it was really scary for me because I took over Girls Fight Back right in the middle of COVID and our whole you know, business model prior to that was all live. You know, we would, I would fly around the country to colleges and speak at colleges and, you know, organizations and high schools. And now all of a sudden we're not doing in person. So it was a major pivot to bring the, the training online. But what's great with Girls Fight Back is it very easily translates to the online format because it is, you know, we can go over all of, you know, the information that I would normally present in a seminar format with Zoom. We have a lot of tools to interact. We have chat, we have annotate, we have polls. So there's ways of engaging with the audience on that. And then I still get them up on their feet to practice the physical. So we stand up and we practice our body language. We practice using our voice. We practice the move. So at least we have a little bit of, um, you know, muscle memory going. And as far as impact, how we do the online classes is that um, it's done with a duo. So just like the in-person classes where you have a lead instructor and a padded instructor, we do the same. And then what the students do online is they have a verbal interaction with the padded instructor and have to talk their way out of a situation through Zoom. And students have said that even that can, uh, can invoke the adrenaline response because it's done in a very realistic way. Part of impacts philosophy is to use realistic language and assaultive language, things that you would hear on the street. We use that language to desensitize people so they can hear it and deal with the emotional response around it and learn that they have options to deal with it so that they hear that out in the real world. It's not going to freeze them. They can move into action more quickly because they have been exposed to it already and have strategies for how to deal with it. Cool. So Nicole, why don't we switch gears just a little bit since we're talking about sort of some of the negative stuff, like how did you get into hiking in the outdoors? 
What's your favorite things to do? What's your favorite places you've been? Like on the positive side, where are these awesome places you're going that you, you want to be able to defend yourself in? I have traveled all over the world. I've hiked in 15 different countries. I started being in the outdoors from the time I was a little girl. I lived in 29 Palms. I grew up out there. So right near Joshua Tree National Park, even though I didn't visit the park very often as a kid because my family wasn't super outdoorsy, you could not keep me indoors. I was exploring the washes. There was, you know, fields by my house. I lived kind of up out of the the main part of the town and I was out collecting rocks and catching lizards and you know watching the the sunset and the sun and the birds and the road run like I was just all about nature and when I you know moved to Los Angeles for college or to Long Beach for college you know I would try to get out as much as I could to just be out in the fresh air and I started hiking more um uh, I guess consistently or more, yeah, I guess more consistently is the right word. I would say about seven years ago, my sister and I started just taking trails around Griffith Park. And then, you know, when she didn't want to come with me, I would go by myself. And I had friends that would come in and out of my life from, you know, different work aspects that would, oh, you hike, I'll, I'll hike with you. And you would hike. And if they weren't available, I would just hike on my own. What really got me into it was I took a trip to New Zealand. And part of my trip was to do the Tongariro Alpine Crossing. It was rated as one of the best great walks in not just New Zealand, but the world. And I was looking up all the things I needed. And I was like, oh, I need waterproof jacket. Oh, I need, I actually need hiking boots. Cause I'd been hiking in my tennis shoes up until this point, you know, without a backpack, just, you know, a little fanny pack of water. <laughs> so I was like, oh, there's like a list of things I needed to do to step up my game, to be able to do this, this difficult trail. And I hadn't done anything more than eight miles or six to eight miles until then. And this is a 12 mile, you know, point to point hike. So I did that hike. I ended up doing it on my own, but there's people around you, you know, there's tons of people hiking it, but I was my own group unto myself and I hiked it. And I said to myself, this is absolutely amazing. I got to do more hikes like this back home, like longer hikes. I just got to do it. So I've, um, I hiked that I've hiked most of the peaks here in Southern California. I've hiked in South Korea. I've hiked in Japan. I did the four day Inca trail to Machu Picchu in Peru, which that was hard. Day two was the hardest day. And now whenever something feels hard, I said, Nicole, you can do it because you hiked day two of the Inca Trail. What is it about day twos? Uh, Jeff and I and our friend Derek had the most torturous day ever um, on the Wonderland Trail last year. And it was day two. It was it was brutal. So I don't know. I guess day, there's something about day two that just, just uh, makes it super hard. Man, it must be. But I, I think, too, the way they structured the hike, that was the most elevation gain. We reached the highest point on the Inca Trail on that day, which I think was 14,000-something feet. Yeah, you go over 14,000. Was it? You go over 14,000 on that pass. Yeah, it's it's intense. And you know, you're know you already at elevation. Cusco's already at elevation, so you're already like not used to the, that the lack of oxygen. And I came in three days prior to like acclimate, but just so that I wouldn't get alt, uh, altitude sickness, but you're not really used to the thin air. You're just hopefully not getting sick. And I ne I didn't get sick. Thankfully I was taking Diamox and, you know, I was drinking the cocoa tea that they were giving you to, to help with that, but you're still, you know, you're taking a deep breath, but you're not getting in all your oxygen. So it was 
really humbling for me because I was out like doing these hikes in Southern California, you know, trying to get my fitness up and I'm, you know, I'm walking all fast and, and, and I get to Peru to hike and I'm taking five steps and I'm like, <sighs> I'm like out of breath. And all the other people in my group were, had been in Peru and South America for like months. So they were just, they just took off and left me <laughs> because I'm, I'm back here struggling for air. <laughs> and I felt so demoralized because I thought, oh, I thought I was in shape. I thought I could do this. Maybe I can't do this. You know, so I did big portions of the Inca Trail by myself because everyone else was in my group was faster than me. But I, then I, I had a realization and I was like, you know what? This isn't about them. This is about me. And this is about my relationship with the trail. This is about my feet hitting the trail. It's about my eyes taking in this amazing scenery. It's about me taking the, as many breaks as I need to fill the air into my lungs to enjoy this. And just one step at a time, I'm going to get there. And once I, I thought like that, then I, I started, then, then I hit just, it was just a much better experience. That was on day one that I kind of like fit into that vibe. So day two, you're at elevation, you can't breathe, you're climbing intense amounts of elevation gain. It was just brutal. It was brutal. But I made it and then I got to the top and I was like, yes. I have a funny Inca trail story. So we went with a group of people, most of which were not prepared for the trip at all. But our lead guide was like, oh, you know, the first day easy, the trail is flat. He's like, the trail is flat the first day. So it's like a good warm up day. It'll be easy. It's flat. It's, you know, it'll be flat. It's easy. So we get to the Inca trail the first day and it's all uphill. And like, we, we're like going uphill and, we're, and some people in the group were like, what's going on? And so we get to lunch and everyone's like, Jimmy, you said it was like flat. This isn't flat. And he goes, oh yeah, the trail's flat. Tomorrow and next day, it's all steps. He meant literally, like he didn't mean like up or down. Like he literally was saying that the trail was flat. It wasn't steps. And like day two, you just, you're like steps almost the whole day in the elevation. It was really funny. We were all like, oh, <laughs> so that's always a joke that we have now. Is the trail flat? <laughs> How flat is the trail? But yeah. Did you run into a lot of bugs on the first day? There were so many like gnats in my face the first day. No, we went over New Year's. We didn't have, um, I don't remember the bugs. The weather was, you know, we had rain when we went over, I think it's Old Woman's Pass, or I, I don't remember what they call it, but when we went over the pass, it was like freezing rain the whole time um, and wind. So we definitely had weather, but so I think that's probably helped if we didn't have the bugs. Yeah, those steps are brutal, especially on the way down. I think after I got, we got to Machu Picchu and I was like, no more steps. Like, I'm not stepping on any, no. And then they're like, no, we're going to come down and explore. I'm like... <laughs> But that means I have to come back up. But we hiked all this way to get here. Okay, I guess I'll do it. My calves were like rocks from all the stepping up and stepping down. I think that was actually my first hiking experience was like the Inca Trail. Because I'd done triathlons and done other athletic stuff. And a friend, um, I convinced him to do a triathlon. And he's like, all right, but well, you need to come do the Inca Trail with me. And I was like, all right, how hard can it be? It's a walk. It's a hike. <laughs> ah. And it's all flat, so. And it's all flat, yeah. It's flat, apparently. But that's where I did fall in love with trekking poles because the down. Nicole, what do you think from your experience? What do you hear is the most common like situation that, let's say, women or anyone like comes across in the trail that makes them uncomfortable? And like, and what would be your recommendation? Yeah, I think a lot of times people are people come to me with what ifs. Well, what if this happens? Um, what if I encounter this? Or what if? you know, this person comes up to this. So 
there have been a few people that have come to me and said, Hey, well, there was this weird guy that came up to our camp or, you know, this weird person that made me uncomfortable that approached me when we were like stopped. And you know, what, what do I do? And I always tell them like, you're here today. So whatever you did was the right thing. Self-defense is very much about empowering people and empowering their choices. It's not saying that you have to take certain action. It's about giving you options and choices to manage and to do what's going to work best for you. And we always try to tell people or, you know, empower them with the fact that whatever you did to survive anything in the past, if it means that you're here today, you did the right thing. It's not about what you should do. It's what you can do. Since most people seem to be worried about that, well, what if someone is like following up behind me on the trail or like kind of approaches me when I'm solo camping or hiking and just kind of gets in my space, the suggestions that we give with self-defense is to say, is to set a boundary, tell them, you know, you're, you're too close to me. I, I don't want you here. Or I, I don't want to have this conversation you know, please respect my boundary and leave me alone. And to just be direct and to not, not apologize, not feel like you have to apologize if someone's making you uncomfortable and using your voice because sometimes people who are looking to take advantage of other people, they're relying on a certain type of reaction. They're relying on someone to be scared or frozen or, you know, to feel like, to, to be nice, like the toxicity of, of being nice all the time, which very much societally women or people who identify as women are kind of taught to do. You just have to be nice and you have to take care of people and you don't want to offend someone. So if we take control of our confidence and instead of feeling like we have to take care of someone else's feelings and we instead empower ourselves to take care of our safety first and be assertive and be confident and say what we mean then we that can be an effective deterrent so just making eye contact standing up tall and just letting someone know if they're getting too close if they're making you uncomfortable if you don't want to talk to them if they're whatever that thing is that is triggering your intuition just let them know hey i i don't like it that you're standing so close to me which that is really helpful with COVID and our six feet of personal distance. So someone's coming too close. You can say, Hey, social distance. And, you know, just letting someone know, look, I'm not interested in having this conversation. And if that person thinks you're an awful person because you said that, well, okay. And then what they think you're awful. Great. They get to go on and have their life and then you get to continue on safely. But your voice is such a powerful tool and such a powerful weapon. And that alone can be enough of a deterrent in a situation like that. Yeah, it's something I've heard you say before, and it's um, it's like it's easy to hear, but I feel like harder to do. Which is that like your safety is more important than somebody else's feelings, because you know I just I want to be like the hey, how's it going? Like I you know you want to be that sort of like friendly, happy person on the trail, but in those moments, like it's sort of empowering and sort of accepting the fact that like you don't have to always be friendly, that you don't always have to be nice, that if something doesn't feel right. It's a, you know, like you said, like they're like if their feelings are hurt, you don't know, right? You don't know if it's just that you were being rude and their feelings are hurt or if that person potentially like if that's something you felt was potentially going to be turned into something worse. So it's better to like live with somebody's hurt feelings <laughs> than something bad. But um, yeah, like it's interesting. It's one of those things that when you when I first heard you say that, I was like, it seems so simple, but it's so much harder than it seems. Yeah. And it's like, like you said, if 
it's okay. Like we can be nice people. There's nothing saying that we're not nice and, and standing up for our boundaries doesn't mean that we're not nice people. It just means we were being assertive and standing up for our boundaries in that moment. And it's all up to your intuition. I love to smile. I'm a very positive person. I'm always very upbeat, but the moment I sense something's off, I be, you know, it's, it's a different, you know, it's a different energy and we're allowed to shift and change based on our situation. I've helped people on the trail that the, the a guy was like, hurt it looked like and I didn't feel anything weird and I said hey are you okay and he was like yeah this happened and I helped him but there's been times when someone has passed me and I've just gotten a weird feeling and they've asked me for directions I'm like yeah no I can't help you and you know let them look at me any kind of way they wanted and I just went on with my hike and that was it so it just comes down to you and what you feel and how you feel about it yeah and hey maybe that's what headphones are good for maybe you don't even listen to music but you have the headphones so if people talk to you you're like you know, <laughs> and just keep going, you know, and if they're nice, you stop and talk. And if you have a good feeling, you know, and if not, you just, you know, you hide. But I know you don't need to bring the headphones. But yeah, I think that that's a good thing because most people out there, I do want to read it. Most people out there are friendly. So it's important. It is important that you feel comfortable. If you feel something wrong, by all means, respect that. Your intuition is, is very, you know, probably very accurate in a lot of cases or, you know, it's trying to keep you safe. So if you feel something's wrong, do it. But, you know, you shouldn't also necessarily go out there and assume that every situation you have is going to be wrong. Because if that's the case, why are you even going out? If you're so afraid, if it's so uncomfortable for you to be out there, you know, maybe find something that isn't as, you know, in the wilderness to <laughs> to enjoy. Hey, I know, Jason, you were just backpacking in grizzly country. Uh, did you carry bear spray on that trip? I did. Now, I never, I never carry bear spray in the Sierra or, or like Washington and black bear country. I never do. But in grizzly, I do. They're, they're different animals. They react different. Um, and even on this trip, I never actually saw them. But in the area I was in, there was a mom with two cubs. And she had walked through a campground that I was staying in the day before I was there. Um, you know, and she was around. And then I hiked solo out, you know, and I left at six in the morning yesterday all by myself over a pass you know, in, in an area where there was a grizzly bear. So I, I do like having the bear spray in that situation. I don't even know if it would, how much it would actually help in that circumstance, having just had a love attack by a Labrador that charged me before I knew what was happening, you know, a couple of weeks ago in the wilderness. Uh, you know, that questions my own reaction time if a bear is charging me and the ability to get the, uh, but you know, it is like a comfort thing, right? Like a psychological thing. If it makes you feel a little bit more comfortable being out there, even if it's a false hope, I think that's a real hope and it, and, it, and it helps. And you never know, it might help you in some situation and it has been proved effective. I think it's you just have to deploy it fast enough. You know, I think that's more you, you like need, a, a You need to go through situation. some adrenaline-based self-defense training. I do, I do. That Labrador almost killed me with a heart attack. I mean, that was just, that was insane. I, I think I told the story on the last podcast if you want to go, go back and hear that. Yeah, again, I think it's, it's, it's all a comfort level thing. Um, and I also think, hey... That bear spray will work pretty good on people, too, back in L.A., which is probably where I, I feel like I would be more likely to use it in a situation with people <laughs> or, like, you know, bad people than I would be with, with, you know, ever having to deploy it with a bear, at least, you know, in most of the places I backpacked. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of where I'm going with this is that um, a lot of times I see discussions online about you know, carrying pepper spray or carrying some kind of, you know, a knife or a gun even. And uh, when we, when my wife and I, she was my girlfriend at the time, when we were planning to through hike the John Muir Trail, one of her friends asked her, so are you going to carry a gun? You know, I mean, she was thinking about bears and that sort of wildlife, but 
um, you know, that was her perspective, you know, that the wild, you know, wild wilderness is a dangerous place and that, you know, you need to you do something. Now, my wife, you know, she knew better. So we, <laughs> she did not carry a gun. But, you know, I know that that's a discussion that a lot of people have about, you know, those kinds of things. So what do you say to those kinds? Of, I don't What are your feelings and what do you what are your thoughts about, um, you know, things like pepper spray and other kinds of self-defense? Um, One quick side note, we should mention it is actually legal to carry a gun on the John Muir Trail um, and in a lot of other wilderness areas. I think it used to be in all national parks, but now. They did change the law on that um, a few years ago, and it's based on the state laws. But if you do plan on carrying a gun and you do go into the wilderness, just make sure that it's legal. Because if you're carrying a gun and it's illegal to carry a gun on federal property, that's not that's not a good situation. That's a much more scary situation you're putting yourself in than probably anything that's going to arise while actually hiking. All right, well, and I have cool. to say, I've never... I've never thought it to be a great idea, just be personally, because, you know, it's... You know... It's that adrenaline-based scenario that you're talking about, Nicole, that something happens and you have to respond right away. And if you're, you know, if you're carrying something that's buried in your pack, you know, then that's not going to do you any good. And so, um, I don't know, just, I, I thought I'd bring that up because I think somebody's going to ask the question. Yes. People ask me this all the time. So many DMs about weapons. So here is what I will say about weapons. I am an advocate for education. I think that if you are going to carry something, no matter what that weapon of choice is, that you should be educated in how to use it and you should train with it. And I, this is coming from someone who, like I said, I like to learn how to do things just so that I know in case there's a worst case scenario. So I know how to shoot guns, handguns and shotguns. I've gone skeet shooting and I've gone to the range. So I know how to handle it. I know how to take it apart and clean it. I know how to oil it because I wanted to understand and know from an, from an educational standpoint. So when it comes to weapons, whatever you plan to use, you must train with it. And it's for exactly the reason that you said, Jeff, it's about adrenaline. When you are adrenalized, your fine motor skills no longer work the way they do when you are calm and you're not adrenalized. So people have even said that they've had a hard time opening up their car door with a key or putting their key in ignition and turning it when they're adrenalized because that's a fine motor movement. So if you are not training with your tool, whether that be pepper spray, a knife, a taser, uh, you know, a gun, whatever it is, you have to train with it so that it becomes part of your muscle memory. That way, when you are in an adrenalized situation, you already know how to use this tool. Otherwise, you may be disappointed in how you are able to actually deploy it or use it. And it might not be the, the scenario you're visioning in your head of being able to just reach forward and automatically be able to use it in a calm manner unless you train with it. Another thing that I say about weapons is that I want to, I want people to not put all of their personal safety into a tool, hoping it's going to save them. I want them to put it into their mind and their body because that is ultimately where your self-defense starts and where it ends. So even if you reach for a tool, you have to, you're thinking through what you're going to do and how you're going to use it. And, you know, so it's like, tools can fail and they do fail. And I don't want someone to just automatically think, oh, I have this weapon, whatever that is. Now, all of a sudden I'm safe. 
And then if something happens and, and that tool is not accessible, then they feel like, well, now I'm helpless. Now there's nothing I can do because that's not the case. You're not helpless without a tool or a weapon. There's plenty that you can do. So whatever you choose to bring or use, please practice with it, train with it, understand how it works, you know, feel comfortable using it and, and rely on your body and your mind. Yeah. And that actually goes, that goes way beyond self-defense too. I mean, even things like, you know, using a GPS app on your, on your phone, if you don't know how to use it and if you haven't trained with it, if you're not aware, you know, how to know how to read contour lines and things like that, it's, it's going to be a very limited use to you, if any at all. And it can give you a sense of false confidence about what you're doing. And that's what you want to avoid. So, so I'm going to take a wild guess now. Because just in case of the zombie apocalypse, you could actually operate a samurai sword from a motorcycle now. Am I right on that, Nicole? Is that, is that, have you gotten that mastered skill down yet? You know, I haven't trained with swords, but I am trained in archery. So I could arch from either the back of a horse or a motorcycle. Ooh, that would be awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> if I become a zombie, I'm chasing somebody else. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh, it feels like I keep what com keeps coming through my head is plan and prepare, you know, sort of, which is, you know, one of the leave no trace principles. It's one of the recreate responsibly principles, but this all sort of falls under plan and prepare, right? Like before you go out, like general safety is, as Jeff said, it's knowing how to use your GPS. It's what you have in your pack. It's knowing your route. It's, you know, trip planning. It's outdoor defense. It's knowing what skills you need to help yourself feel comfortable. Um, it's all sort of, you know, and it's, and these are all things, you know, it's having your first aid kit and knowing how to use it, like knowing first aid. It's all of these things that like all of these skills and tools, a lot of times that you have that you hope you never have to use. Right. But like they're in your toolkit. So it's more just like adding an important skill to your toolkit. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. It, it's, it's adding another tool to your toolbox is what we say in class. You know, we want to give you options so that you can pick what's going to work for you in that situation. So much of, you know, emergency training and even survival training is based on worst case scenario, hoping that you never have to use it, but it's there. And I feel like, you know, self-defense, in some ways, self-defense is like that. Like we train with these physical skills, these devastating strikes so that we know how to use it, but we hope we never do have to use it, but it's there if we need it. It's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. But at the same time, so much of self-defense is non-physical and it's these things that we're using to manage our safety and our boundaries, even in our daily life with our friends, with our coworkers, with our family, setting boundaries, speaking up for what we need, you know, feeling comfortable enough to tell someone you know, that they're making us uncomfortable or there's something else that we want. And, you know, I am, um, I took a scuba certification, open water diving, and the amount of time spent on how to deal with, with emergency situations was most of the training. What happens if your regulator stops working? What happens if you run out of air underneath the water? What happens if you can't find your buddy? What happens if your mask gets ripped off? What happens if you have to, you get caught up in something and you have to take off your, your scuba rig under the water and put it back on. So, so much of the training was based on these things that you might never face, but if you do face it, now you have been through the training at least, and you can, you, you can, think hopefully through it. And that's what they want you to be able to do, to be able to think through it. And that's so much of self-defense and just general safety, just being able to think through it. I mean, I think that feels like a perfect place to end it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Nicole, this has really been an awesome. I've really enjoyed talking to you about this and it's been illuminating to me. 
And if somebody wants to learn more about you and the different uh, uh, organizations that you're affiliated with, where can they find that info? They can find me on Instagram. My handles are Adventures of Nick, and that's N-I-K, Adventures of Nick, Girls Fight Back, and also Impact Personal Safety. You can also find me at uh, girlsfightback.com and impactpersonalsafety.com. We're also on Facebook under the same, same names. Awesome. We'll be sure to add all of those links into the show notes as well. So if you're listening to the podcast, check out the show notes. We'll have all those links there. Nice, easy, and clickable. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at the almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventurous women. That's adventure us women. Jeff at the SoCal Hiker, or me at the Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. On our next episode, we talk to climbing guide and rope expert Elena Ahrens. <laughs> <laughs>